Our text for this week comes from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of God for the people of God. Sometimes I feel like you guys are kind of duped into saying that. Um, some texts are, are more difficult than others. I want to try to introduce this, this tough topic tonight by talking a little bit about my grandfather. Now, my grandfather on my dad's side was a tough man. He always has been ever since I've, I've known him. My favorite anecdote that might help you to get a feel for the demeanor uh, of, of my grandfather beyond his penchant for asking middle-aged women how old they are and how much they weigh. Beyond that, uh, my favorite anecdote is a story about him chopping wood maybe 10 years ago. Because my grandparents like to keep their house at a very reasonable and balmy 85 degrees from September through May, uh, my grandfather is tasked with keeping the wood pile always stocked and ready for most of the year. Now, I forget the details and the time of this particular instance, but one day he was moving what was either a large tree stump or a large branch, and he had it on his shoulder, and something happened, and he tripped and stumbled, and the... the the tree limb or whatever fell onto his foot and severed his toe. Now, this is where a normal person would freak out a bit. I, for one, am not great with blood, nor am I great with my appendages uh, being severed and hanging on by some skin. Um, when I was 10 years old, I was active and uh, excited about life, and it was raining one day, and Dad was watching football on a Sunday, and I remember just wanting to throw the ball around with Dad, and at one point, he kind of got to the, to the place where he said, enough is enough, you need to go outside, and I was like, but it's raining. He said, don't care, go outside. So I got my soccer ball, it was pink and green, and I went outside, and we had this little barn, and I would kick the ball against the, the, the panel of the barn and pretend, you know, I was shooting on goal. And I was practicing my penalty kicks, and I slipped, and I fell, and I broke my arm. And this was one of those arm breaks where it's like you, you roll up your sleeve. I was wearing a white sweatshirt that had Garfield on the front. It was from a summer camp that I went to in California. And I remember there was some blood coming through my white sweatshirt. Um, and I, I pulled up my sleeve, and it was one of those breaks where it like, goes like this, and then your arm goes down. It's like this. You could set a coffee mug inside of your arm as it's sitting there. We're on a tangent, so we might as well just go for it. I mean, the way they fixed this at Seaford back in the day was they put my hand in a Chinese finger trap, so there was like all my hands were just sitting there, and the doctor came and went, rope. And mom said you could hear me screaming like throughout the entire floor. It was not, it's not the great time, but I remember as this was unfolding, I said 
to mom as I was in the middle of flapping my arms and running around the room, which is what I did. Whenever I got hurt, I just flapped like a birdie and ran around. <laughs> and mom said, I think we need to go to the hospital. And I said, nope, I'm fine. It'll be okay. Because I knew the Chinese finger traps in the arm and the whole thing. I just, I'm not good with, with pain or with blood or with whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm in a good line of work, I think, where I can be relatively safe. My grandfather is not like me in many ways. Uh, so what he did when his toe is hanging off of his foot, he hopped in the golf cart, drove himself home, went inside, duct taped his toe to his other toe, which is what you do, you know, when your toe is about to fall off. And then he had always taught us that it was important to look presentable, so he decided to get a shower uh, and comb his hair. Every time you see my grandfather walk into a room, he's got this, he'll comb his hair back so he, he looks pretty fresh in his sweatsuits. Um, and then he drove himself to the hospital. Now that's pretty tough slash really stupid. I'm not sure the line is kind of blurry sometimes between tough and stupid. Uh, but as you can imagine, a tough guy like that isn't really great with emotions or hugs or sharing his feelings. Uh, instead, my grandfather has demonstrated his commitment to me and to the rest of the family through his his actions. He's worked hard to provide and care for his family. Uh, and he has fought admirably for each of us through our sometimes very public, uh, very embarrassing problems. Even as a kid, I've always known that he has my back, uh, even though he'll be quick to tell me how stupid I've been at times, but in, in love. Uh, this image of my grandfather, though, as a tough, hardened man, changed uh, last spring when my grandmother passed away. Up until this time, I don't think I've ever seen my grandfather cry. Uh, but the day that she passed away, he was very understandably so broken. And I think it was partly because he didn't want us to see him as weak or as scared or as vulnerable or as heartbroken. Uh, and partly because he might not have known how to process what was happening. Uh, but as things seemed to move towards the end of my grandmother's life in the hospital, my grandfather said his last goodbye, gave her a kiss, and then quickly left the hospital room. They were married for 62 years. As you might expect, there's a level of closeness that comes along with that amount of time being spent together, and it was evident. For me, it's just little stupid stuff that you guys might know and the people that are close to you. It's the way they exchanged Christmas presents. He would always write, to honey from AB, and she would always write something sweet back to him. I was like, Stupid stuff that doesn't necessarily translate. The way that they would look each other, at each other and communicate to one another without using words. The way they would like bust each other's chops and then smile about it. You could tell that there was a commitment to each other, come hell or high water. Uh, and over the course of 62 years of marriage, Kate and I are in seven, and I can attest, at least for Kate and I, uh, there's a good bit of hell in a, in, a, in a good marriage. So I know that they have been through a lot of stuff uh, over this time. The New Testament talks about a good marriage as providing an image of Christ and his radical, unending, committed love for the church. And I saw that in my grandparents, in their love for Jesus and also in their love for one another. Now, many social commentators uh, will opine that millennials, most of you, that 18 to 30-year-old crowd, uh, will only know these sorts of marriages, the 50-plus-year marriages, as a thing of the past, a relic that is rarely, if ever, achieved. 
And there's many potential factors that might go into this uh, prediction. A couple that just hit the top of my head. The over-sexualization of American culture and its consequent disparagement of monogamy, of being tied down. Uh, you can hear a lot of times people saying it's not natural. And we have this within a culture to kind of push people towards whatever, um, whatever drives them, wherever the wind might take them. There's also this romantic notion of romance that's portrayed in movies and television shows. What we envision is something like John Cusack's character in Say Anything. I'm dating myself again. Most of my references go to 80s, early 90s because that's where I was growing up and it's my formative years. But some of us remember like this scene with Lloyd Dobler and the, the boom box and he's trying to win back the love of his life and he goes out in front of her room where she's got her bed, bedroom window cracked open and he's got the boom box up and he's playing In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel, which is one of the finest songs ever written. <laughs> and the over 40 crowd says, amen and amen, because they get things, guys. Just learn from us. Learn from us over here. We've got wisdom and life experience. We can teach you these things. For others of you, it might be Ross and Rachel. It might be Meredith and Derek. It might be Kevin and Winnie. It might be Katniss and Peta, although I would argue that's a messed up situation there. Who does she think she is? She's got both these guys on a string. She can do whatever she wants. Get out of my face. You know what I'm saying? It says something about our culture, doesn't it? It's anything Nicholas Sparks. Anything. For some of you, like, that's the vision that we have of, of romance where that's how life plays itself out. Pinterest and Facebook and other forms of social media don't really help either. And can I just tell you, like, I'm 34 years old, but as I'm talking right now, I hear myself just being 50 and 60 and 70. I'm, I am the grandfather that's saying, kids these days and their social medias, I just can't, I don't understand. Hashtag, what's a hashtag? You know, it's just, but we have these things and we need to, to deal with them because people want to project this image of themselves that isn't probably true. And we've seen some testimonials of, of people like these uh, Instagram-type models and how long it takes them to, to find that perfect shot that they can put on to their account. And sometimes you, we can see that as we're scrolling through, looking at people's food and looking at people's really cleaned-up pictures. And since what we see there isn't always representative of real life, whether it's the movies or on social media, uh, it sets up some unfair expectations that we have going in to relationships, and it might even make us envious of what other people have. We've got this one set of friends, and it's just like so often, it's just these long posts about how great her husband is, and sometimes I read them, and I'm just kind of, I feel like a schlub, because we very quickly get into that compare and contrast and, and seeing all the great things that this person is doing for his wife. Like today's Valentine's Day and I've been tucked away in my study getting ready to talk about divorce, uh, which is strange. Uh, meanwhile, Kate's at home with a kid that screams his face off every time we try to put him down for a nap. It's like, how do you Instagram that, you know? Uh, I don't even know if you would want to, but people fight. Uh, people don't always look presentable and people won't always be standing outside your window with a boombox. Sorry, ladies or gentlemen, uh, doesn't always happen. Like when you're going to repair a broken relationship, Coldplay's song Fix You is not like ushering you into the moment. And neither is Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On, if we're being honest. Uh, you know, it's just, I kinda, this side of the room is looking at me like I'm completely insane. I just want to let that, be, let that record be known. Um, 
And probably related to all of this stuff is the cultural acceptance of divorce that's been happening over the last 20, 30, or 40 years. Uh, what was once a really huge deal has become decidedly less so today in our culture. It's become commonplace. We're familiar with the statistics. A lot of times it's said that roughly 50% of, of marriages in America will end in divorce. Uh, and supposedly those numbers are not any different within the, within the Christian community. To be fair, like some researchers want to push back on that because that number might not necessarily be representative of where you are in your life or in your set of circumstances. For example, that number doesn't typically factor in the education or lack thereof of the participants in the marriage. It's been shown that people with college degrees collectively have a lower chance of divorce than people that don't have degrees. Part of that is directly correlated to the age of people when they get married. So within America, there seems to be this trend to pushing marriage off until later, which could statistically help those marriages stay together. Uh, there's also other societal, socioeconomic, and vocational factors uh, that could potentially affect the dissolution of a, mar a marriage relationship. And these are not necessarily reflected just in that straightforward 50% of marriages won't work. Still, I think it's safe to assume that most of us in this room um, have felt the effects of divorce. The stigma might be gone that's attached to it, but the pain uh, definitely does not seem to be. All of these reasons that I've listed, they're very simplistic, and I know that. I know that marriage is hard. I know that full well. Um, and to name a movie or a TV show or a cultural trend as a contributing factor, it just kind of smacks as re reductionistic. I know that married people face real issues with real miscommunications, real hurts. In some instances, they face real experiences of infidelity and faithlessness and abuse. Tonight's text in Mark, it's a tough one. One scholar writes this. He says, Mark is not interested in speculating when a, a divorce may be less, a less worse situation than a bad marriage. Let me read that again. Mark is not interested in speculating when a divorce may be a less worse situation than a bad marriage. There is no such thing as a good divorce for Mark. Every divorce witnesses to a failure of God's purpose in marriage. Clearly, that's not good fodder for an inspirational sermon. It sounds really harsh. And when you throw in Matthew's version of this story, which kind of tweaks some of the details a little bit, or you go to Corinthians and read Paul, it just adds to some of this confusion about what in the world's happening here. I think it's important to note at the outset before we get any further that Jesus is not simply doling out rules that must be followed in this passage. Yes, he has very strict teaching when it comes uh, to marriage and family, especially uh, to his disciples behind closed doors in verses 11 and 12, but it shouldn't be missed that he appears to be heartbroken over the fact that people's hearts are hard, that married couples hurt each other, abandon each other, that their own individual pursuits and passions are the things that they strive after at times rather than working together towards reconciliation. In the passage that immediately follows the one that we're looking at tonight in verses 13 and following, 
Uh, you could make the case that Jesus seems to be aware of the effects of uh, a broken marriage on kids as well as he begins in this, this teaching of including children. That might be a stretch for some. None of this is what God intended. The brokenness, the difficulty, the strife. None of this is what it was from the beginning. I want to be clear. This talk is not meant in any way, shape, or form to induce guilt or shame or embarrassment for those who have been divorced, for those who are contemplating divorce, for the kids of divorced homes. While I'm hopeful that couples who are working diligently, seeking good counsel, trusting the Spirit to move them towards reconciliation, to mend their marriages, while I'm, I'm hopeful that that might happen, I think it's important to affirm that I also believe that there are legitimate reasons when a marriage should end. Those aren't the focus of this passage tonight in Mark. What Jesus is doing is he's highlighting what marriage is intended to be, namely a lifelong commitment in which spouses would fight to build something better together. I hope that for those of us who are married in the room tonight, that Jesus' teaching could be something that inspires us as we think about the state of our marriages. A lot of times as I'm just sitting and driving and contemplating the decisions I've made, whether it's ministry versus family or Josh's agenda versus family, for those sorts of things, sometimes it comes pretty difficult for me to look in the mirror and to, to judge where, where I've been, but I hope that this teaching can help move us towards working for resolution to recognizing the privilege that we have to love our husband or our wife, to take advantage of opportunities to celebrate each other, to ask forgiveness, to put in the work, if at all possible. I also hope for single people in the room uh, that what we might be able to hear in this teaching is this continued echo of Mark's call towards discipleship. This is all part of his larger teaching in chapters 8 through 10 about what it really looks like to submit and follow Jesus. And for some people, like this is going to be a part of life, and Jesus is kind of pushing us into uh, thinking through what it looks like for us to be married. If you're moving towards marriage, perhaps Jesus' words might become something that frames your expectations going forward, that helps you to see uh, the difficulty and also the privilege and also just the amount of responsibility that it, it takes. But even if marriage is not on the horizon, uh, whether by choice or by circumstance, I still think that there's something here in this text that we can pull out and apply in our own varied situations. I hope also that for those who are divorced or in the middle of difficult times, or again, for the kids who have seen their parents go through battles and you're wearing those scars, I hope that what you hear in this passage is not judgment or guilt. I hope that what you hear in Jesus is the cry of one who wants to bring you to wholeness. Within our culture, especially within the church culture, I think that we've done a bad job of that because we have oftentimes pushed people out because of the decisions that they've made or because of the decisions that have been made against them. And what I want you to hear is not another voice in the back of your mind that says, I'm tainted, I'm broken, I'm not worth anything, but I want you to hear the passion in Jesus' heart as he's talking through this. It's not the way it should be. I want something better for you. 
I think that we can take that on an individual level where we hear him wanting so desperately to engage us wherever we are. So happy Valentine's Day. Let's talk about divorce, okay? In Mark chapter 10, the way that this story breaks down is Jesus begins his journey towards Jerusalem. In the common English version of this text, it says, Jesus left that place and went beyond the Jordan and into the region of Judea. Now, Jesus in the previous uh, passage had been up here in the north in Capernaum, which is right outside the Sea of Galilee here. And what's happening is a lot of times people would cross over the Jordan to the east as they're going down to Jerusalem, which is right here, because they don't want to go through Samaria. Now, if you're thinking about the parable of the Good Samaritan and like that twist at the end, the fact that the Samaritan was the one that Jesus praises as a, a model of one who gets who a neighbor is and how to treat your neighbor. For an ancient audience, that would have just been too much to handle because they hated the Samaritans. So a lot of people would want to travel here to the east and go down and then cross back over into Judea so that they could completely avoid this area. We don't know why Jesus is choosing to do this. It seems like it's the convention of the day. Um, but what's more important to note in this passage is that the crowds were gathered around Jesus. It says, again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. His reputation, his teachings, his miracle workings, uh, the controversy that's surrounding Jesus wherever he goes, all these factors were leading people just to want to be where he was, to see what he would do next. Sometimes people had good motives for that, and sometimes people had uh, different motives for that. In our text, for example, Jesus' departure and going south was an opportunity for some Pharisees to show up and to test him. So N.T. Wright thinks that this is a politically motivated move. Now, some of you may remember this, some of you may not. Uh, the, the, the passage that we looked at not too long ago about the beheading of John the Baptist. The reason why John the Baptist was beheaded was because he was talking about the marriage of the ruler in his region, uh, Herod Antipas, who had married Herodias, who was married to Herod Antipas's brother and then divorced and then married to Herod Antipas. John did not think that this was appropriate and John voiced that opinion and John became like blacklisted with regard to this family in power. So much so that John eventually dies because of it. So what some people are thinking is that Jesus is kind of stepping into this controversy and the Pharisees want to get a sound bite from Jesus about this particular issue. Think TMZ, think paparazzi, think, Jesus, what's your opinion on this? Just so you can get that little clip, post it on Twitter, and then start some kind of political controversy because Jesus uh, was a figure that the Pharisees did not like and that they were wanting to figure out a way to get him out of there. And their thought was that if we could get on tape or whatever that looks like, uh, a blurb from Jesus that would talk trash against the marriage of the person in power and that person could actually do something with Jesus, that that would be a good thing. So it all sets up the Pharisees' question where they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? On its own, this question is ridiculous. It's silly because they already knew the answer. Everybody in this moment in time knew the answer. Uh, one scholar says, 
It's odd that this question should be raised at all since, as the Pharisees will immediately remind Jesus, the law of Moses makes explicit provision for divorce and therefore all of the major Jewish sects in the first century seem to have permitted it. This was common knowledge. So the Pharisees are wanting to get Jesus to go beyond this to say something that would have uh, been a bit more risque. But Jesus avoids this trap and he responds brilliantly. He responds in the way that he always does. He just asks a question back to the Pharisees. He says, what did Moses command you? Why do you need to ask me? You, you know, why did Moses command you? Now, some people will read into the fact that Jesus is saying, why did Moses command you? Almost like separating himself from what the Pharisees are doing at this uh, point in time. The Pharisees do respond, though. They say, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. What the Pharisees are appealing to is a text in the book of Deuteronomy from a long time ago, Deuteronomy chapter 24, a passage that's traditionally attributed to Moses. Now, the strange thing in this passage is that it doesn't really command anything about divorce. It takes it for granted that divorce is an option. The certificates of divorce were a thing that people had to, uh, to give, but the law is more concerned with a specific instance of divorce. So this is the text. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. This caused all sorts of controversies within uh, Jewish interpretation to figure out what in the world does it mean to become displeasing and what could he potentially find that was indecent about this person? So the grounds for divorce were up in the air, but something else is happening in this text. So he does this, he sends it to, gives her a certificate, uh, sends her away from his home, and if after that she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, this lady's not having a great go at things, he gives it to her, sends her away from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband's not allowed to marry her again. So this text is about a very specific issue in Jewish culture where husband number one says, I find something displeasing with you. Here's your papers. Go away. Wife then goes, finds husband number two, and at some point in time, husband number two says, I find you displeasing to me. Here is your papers of divorce. Please go away. Then she cannot go back to husband number one. It sounds so archaic partly because it is archaic. But I want you to, to hear what's, what's happening in this particular passage. We're trying to figure out what's going on here. Now, there's a couple of schools of thought with regard to what are the things that people could legitimately send their wife away for. One school in this time was the school of uh, Shammai, who was very conservative, and they said the only reason why you can divorce a wife is for sexual infidelity. It's the only reason. There was another side, the school of Hillel. He was real hipster liberal. He says, ah, yes, you can pretty much send your wife away for any reason that you ever have, such as, quote, a wife spoiling her husband's meal. Legit. Here's your walk-in papers. A wife who um, is not as attractive as someone else, or whenever this person finds someone more attractive, Legit reason, according to Hillel. Take your papers and go. So here within Jewish culture, we're trying to figure out what in the world is actually the proper grounds for divorce. But either way, the Pharisees were per perfectly comfortable with divorce actually happening. There was laws where people would have to give papers to a woman to send her 
away. Now here's the point. Jesus doesn't engage in this conversation. Instead, he responds by going back to the beginning and stick with me. This is where I think that we have some ties for what's happening for us wherever we might be. First, Jesus notes uh, the fact that divorce is not a command, it's a concession that was to accommodate the people's sinfulness, the fact that people had hard hearts, the, the fact that people would get ticked about a dinner gone bad or start to uh, look the other way at someone that might be prettier. The fact that these things were happening is why this teaching was put into place. This is not God's best for his people. This is a thing that must take place in order to make accommodations for who we are. Jesus goes beyond that, though, and he begins to appeal back to the beginning. He says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, here he's citing Genesis 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but they're one. Therefore, what God has joined together, don't let anybody separate that. For Jesus, divorce was not what God had in mind. It's not what God intended. And what Jesus seems to be saying, though, is the world that we live in is jacked up. The world that we are in, in, living in in this moment, it's fallen. And it's as if Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, guys, you're asking the wrong question. You're talking about what the proper grounds are for divorce, but... This isn't how it should be. The better question will lead married couples, and I might argue all of us, back to the beginning. So what happens in Genesis, we meet these two characters in this garden, this lush, beautiful, perfect garden, and they're only given one command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as they're going about, we see sin, we see brokenness, and we see the results from their action. We see in the beginning chapters of Genesis, these two people are meant to be in mutual submission to one another. They're meant to be equals. They're meant to be living out this beautiful creation that God has entrusted to them and with them. And what's interesting is in Genesis chapter 3, after these folks sin, the ramifications of that sin are played out, and it talks about the woman her desire would be for her husband, but her husband would rule over her. From Genesis 1, where we have these two people in equality and with sin, the paradigm gets totally shifted. There's a, stru there's a, a struggle, there's enmity between these two folks that isn't how it should be. There's a brokenness between them. There's a pain between them. There's, there's difficulties between them. That isn't what it was meant to be in the beginning. The really cool thing about Jesus is through his death and through his resurrection, what he's trying to do is to take this hierarchy and fix it. Not just with the way that we relate to the opposite sex, but with everything. There's this theme of restoration. There's this theme of wholeness. There's this theme of forgiveness. There's this theme of fixing the massive problems with the world. And through Jesus, we, we see that. So in his teaching here about marriage and divorce, it's not just about 
legalistic approaches to what you can do and what you shouldn't do. What he's saying is there's a better way to live. I don't think it's too far of a leap for us, single, married, divorced, widowed, doesn't matter. I don't think it's too far of a leap for us to hear the underlying implications of what Jesus is teaching. And this, if you've heard nothing else, please hear the next two minutes. For Jesus' audience and for us, we're called to live with the beginning in mind. We're called to live living out this intention that God had for his people to live as image bearers of God who respect others and who celebrate their inherent dignity and self-worth and who are dedicated to passionately living lives in obedience to God's call. Jesus is at pains because this is not happening because there's brokenness within his world where people are getting ticked about a dinner gone bad. People are getting antsy about chasing after this person or that person, and what Jesus is wanting them to see is it's not the way it's meant to be. If we actually started living that out, I think that it would completely revolutionize not only our marriages, but our lives. It would revolutionize our friendships, our acquaintances, our relationships with our employers and our employees, seeing others and ourselves as people that are in the image of God, that have inherent dignity and self-worth. It would begin to shift how we think and it would silence our inbuilt prejudices and our bitterness towards other people. Perhaps this might be a stretch, but what else would cause Jesus to say in our lives and in the lives of those around us it is this way. Allowances have been made, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. What else in our life demonstrates that truth that as we are living, it's not the way that it should be? In many ways, I think that what we're doing is we're selling short the gospel of Jesus. We've turned it into a message that's just for me, that's just about my sins, that's just about me going to Heaven, and it has no real bearing on the world around us because if we're being truthful, we're not being transformed by Christ. We're settling for life that's firmly entrenched in the patterns that have been set after the fall. We are settling for this. Whatever that looks like, whatever that means for us in our lives, when we're settling for what is not even second best, but maybe third best or fourth best or just not good at all. What would it look like if we lived differently? What is the image that we could provide the world of redemption, of hope, of forgiveness, of restoration, if we actually trusted Jesus and if we actually followed after him? For some of you, it needs to start at home. For others of you, it might need to start at work. For others of you, it might need to start just in your own mind as you begin to accept the fact that Jesus has called you for bigger things than what you're currently doing. But as we contemplate this big idea where Jesus is at pains to say, the world is broken, but it's not supposed to be that way. As Christians, what are we playing into where he's whispering to us, it's not the way it's supposed to be.
I don't know where you guys need to take this, but I hope that what you see here is not just legalistic Jesus going to task saying, no, 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 no. I hope what you see is a savior who loves you and cares about you and wants something better for you. And that question that's so pregnant is, how are we living right now in a way that's settling for sin or settling for life as it's not intended to be. I hope that you can begin to process some of that. We're gonna uh, transition into a time of communion. I hope that what we see is this picture of Jesus who desperately loves his people and is pleading for us collectively to begin to understand as his disciples continue to not understand that we're meant for more.